We begin a new series this morning in the book of Nehemiah. Now we know that the events of Nehemiah happened sometime after the events of Esther, but we're still in that restoration era, that time when the Persian kings give the exiled Jews permission to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and the temple. And Nehemiah plays a crucial role in that rebuilding, and this book is his memoir. Now, one thing that we will discover about Nehemiah is that he is a man of prayer. So, it is fitting that we should pray as we prepare to hear his story. Let's pray. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, hear the prayer of your servants, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Grant us insight into your word that we might be strengthened to serve you faithfully through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Now, you'll recall that the action of the book of Esther took place not in the land of Israel, but in Persia, in the city of Susa, and in the palace of the great king Ahasuerus. The book of Nehemiah begins in the same place. Nehemiah is one of those exiled Jews living in Susa. And like Mordecai, he has been granted an official position in the Persian government. We learn later in chapter 1 that Nehemiah was cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. King Artaxerxes. Now, cupbearer doesn't sound like a very glorious title. What? All he does is carry cups. We need a whole position for that? I don't... But it was actually an important office in the empire. The cupbearer had ready access to the king. And as we saw in the book of Esther, that alone uh, is, is not a small thing. There's also evidence that the cupbearer was like the chief financial officer of the empire in charge of the accounts. He also bore the signet ring of the king and could act in his name. Uh, And later sources do suggest that the cupbearer was the royal wine taster. He was to protect the king from poisoning, perhaps even at the cost of his own life. So the cupbearer is responsible for the king's money and for the king's life. And so that tells us something about Nehemiah's character. Uh, He's faithful. He's trustworthy. He's responsible. He is a good and faithful servant to his king, even though he is an exile in this land. Now, we will find that Nehemiah remains faithful wherever the Lord places him, even when it is a difficult spot. Now, before we see that, though, Even though Nehemiah has faithfully and fully devoted himself to serving the Persian king, we learn that his heart and his hope are still tied to the God of Israel and to the city of Jerusalem. And that provides the impetus for this story. We learn in chapter 1 that in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, there were some Jews from Judah and Jerusalem who come to Susa, And of course, Nehemiah asks how things are going with the folks back home. And they tell him, the remnant there in the province is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. 
Now, in the ancient world, uh, the city wall was its primary and its most effective defense against attack. The walls of Jerusalem had been destroyed and burned a long time ago by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. That was almost 100 years before this. And there were many attempts to rebuild them during that 100 years, all of them unsuccessful. And so Nehemiah's love for his homeland and his people shows forth in the distress that this news, this report causes him. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. We see Nehemiah takes on the suffering of his people. But look at the second half of that verse. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah is a man of prayer. When trouble arises, Nehemiah's first response is always to take it to the Lord in prayer. And we'll see that over and over again as we walk through this story today. And we would do well to learn from Nehemiah how we ought to pray, especially from this long prayer that we see here at the beginning of the book. This is Nehemiah 1, verses 5 through 11. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Now note that this is a memorial prayer. Nehemiah is calling God to remember, calling God to act according to the promises he has made. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Nehemiah is calling God here to act on those covenantal promises that he made through the prophets, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and Zechariah and Haggai. God promised to do this, to bring his people back and dwell with them in the land. And so Nehemiah knows those promises, and he's calling on God to remember, to act according to those promises. Continuing on, verse 10. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And so Nehemiah's prayer ends with that specific petition. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. The man he's referring to is King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah has just petitioned the heavenly power, the king of kings in this prayer, because he intends to go petition God's earthly representative, the great king 
Artaxerxes, the king that God had chosen to shepherd the known world at this time and to shepherd Israel in her exile. This is the man. Doesn't Nehemiah's prayer and his fasting remind you of Esther? Esther prayed and fasted in preparation for her ascent to petition the king to ask him to save and to protect the Jews. And Nehemiah finds himself in the same predicament. And so he turns to the king of kings in prayer and fasting before he goes to approach the earthly king. And in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, we see him make this request. And like Esther, Nehemiah shrewdly waits for the proper moment to approach the king, and just like Esther, he does it at a feast. Chapter 2, verse 1, says, In the month of Nisan, now, incidentally, what event from Israel's history do we know occurs in the month of Nisan? It's the Passover. Do you think that might be significant? Here in Nehemiah, we have a feast, it's likely at night, where Nehemiah is asking the king to deliver the Jews from great trouble and shame. So perhaps this is another Passover. Perhaps we're about to see a new kind of exodus. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, again, Nehemiah is a man of prayer. See, even in the very moment that he's about to make this request, he first offers a quick prayer. So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? When will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Now notice first that Nehemiah attributes his success to the Lord. He knows that it is the Lord who moves the king to grant his request. And also uh, compare and contrast this story with that of the Exodus, right? There in Exodus, we see Moses go before Pharaoh and he asks him to let the sons of Israel go. Just as here Nehemiah goes before Artaxerxes and he asks him to let the Jews go to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, you'll note the difference is that at the Exodus, 
God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he refused to let the Israelites go. But here, Artaxerxes is God's appointed king, the shepherd of Israel in their time of exile. So God does not harden his heart, but rather softens the heart of Artaxerxes so that he will grant Nehemiah's request. And just as the Egyptians gave Israel cloth and gold and silver and jewels as they left, plunder, which Israel later used to build the tabernacle, so here we see Artaxerxes give Nehemiah supplies to take with him, which will be used for the building of Jerusalem. So you see that Nehemiah is a new Moses. He's interceding with the king to deliver God's people. And so God is using Nehemiah to bring about a new kind of exodus. God has heard the cries of his people in the trouble and shame of their captivity. He has heard the prayers of his servant Nehemiah. And he comes to redeem his people. So Nehemiah, he goes to Jerusalem, and it's a long journey. And on the way, he has to pass through Samaria, which is the capital of the province beyond the river. And here in Samaria, we meet the villain of our story, Sanballat, the governor of the province beyond the river. He's under Artaxerxes' authority, but he's the ruler of this region in which Judah and Jerusalem reside. Now, Sanballat sees Nehemiah with a military escort coming from King Artaxerxes, and he finds out that Nehemiah has orders to rebuild Jerusalem, and he doesn't like that. You see, Sanballat wants to keep Jerusalem the way they are, vulnerable, unprotected, easy to rule. He doesn't want the Jews becoming an independent nation again. That will mean a loss of power and land and, and taxes for him. And so he's upset. And Nehemiah sees this, and he can tell there's trouble brewing, but he continues on to Jerusalem. And on his third day in the city, he gets up in the middle of the night, and he goes out for a secret inspection of the current state of the walls. And so you see that the situation is so precarious that Nehemiah doesn't even tell his fellow Jews that he's doing this. He goes out to see what shape the city walls are in. And when he's finished with the inspection, he gathers everyone for a situational report. Chapter 2, verse 17. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. That strengthening of the hands, that's a central image in the book of Nehemiah, and really in all of the Restoration Era books as they seek to build and rebuild Jerusalem. They strengthen their hands. But I want you to quickly look back at Nehemiah's prayer, chapter 1, verse 10, and you'll find there that Nehemiah says that God has already redeemed Israel with his strong hand. 
And so it is this strong hand of the Lord which delivered his people from Egypt, delivered them from exile, now delivers them back to the land. The strong hand of the Lord is what will strengthen and embolden the strong hands of Nehemiah and his people. But whenever God's people seek to follow his command, there will be opposition from the world. And that's what we find in chapter 2, verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and uh, the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, "What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king?" Then I replied to them, "The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem." Now, them's fighting words, right? So you see already the stage is set. This is the conflict here in the first part of the book of Nehemiah. Will Nehemiah and the Jews succeed where countless others have failed? Or will Sanballat and the forces of evil crush them into submission? Now, strategically speaking, the Jews are in a precarious position here. Uh, again, how do you defend your city in the ancient world? Well, you build a wall. But that takes a long time and labor, right? And while you're building this wall, you are very much vulnerable to attack. But Nehemiah and the Jews trust that God is with them, that the king supports them. And so they strengthen their hands for the good work. Now, we're not going to get too far into Nehemiah chapter 3 today because it's a very long list of all the families who helped with the rebuilding and the locations that they helped rebuild, and it's very interesting, uh, but we won't get into that this morning. It's a record, it's a memorial of those who risked their livelihood and their lives to rebuild the ruins of Jerusalem. But we're going to move on to chapter 4. And there, Governor Sanballat hears what these Jews are doing, and he's angry. And in his anger, he mocks them. He says, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And so this is the first opposition that we see Nehemiah facing. And it's simply words of derision. It's, it's mocking. They're mocking the Jews and mocking whom they serve. And this is one of the ways that the world opposes the people of God by mocking them. Now, how will Nehemiah respond? He will not return curse for curse. Instead, the man of prayer voices his anger and his frustration to God. And he cries out for justice. Verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And Nehemiah trusts that promise. We are to do the same. When we are mocked and attacked, we are not to return curse for curse. We are to take it to the Lord in prayer and trust in his justice. 
And while we do that, we are to still keep our hand to the plow. We are to continue to do the work of the Lord. And so that's what Nehemiah and the Jews do. They continue to build despite the mocking, despite the opposition. Now when Sanballat and the other enemies of Judah see that their mocking has not stopped the Jews from working, they begin to threaten violence. So Nehemiah and the Jews prepare to defend themselves. Nehemiah stations guards for the work teams. He arms them with swords and spears and bows. And this brings, us, uh, brings about one of the most memorable images of the book. Chapter 4, verse 16. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. In modern terminology, every man had his DeWalt max drill in one hand and his AR-15 in the other. Now, that's not the most efficient loadout, is it, for construction or for warfare? It's not very convenient to have a sharp sword flopping around while you're lifting and stacking bricks. Sounds kind of dangerous. OSHA would not approve of this work environment, right? And you could be attacked by raiders at any moment. But Nehemiah and the Jews find strength in the presence of the Lord and in obedience to his word. So they work on a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. Chapter 5 Nehemiah has to deal with some internal strife among the Jews and some other impediments to the building. And he takes time to provide for the poor of the city. Now again, we won't delve into those passages this morning. We'll remain focused on this wall, so we'll skip to chapter 6. Seeing that this threat of violence did not cause the Jews to waver from their task, Sanballat and his boys resort to more devious schemes. In chapter 2, verse 2, Sambalot calls Nehemiah to come out of the city to parley, to have a peaceful negotiation. But Nehemiah knows their true intention is to assassinate him if he leaves the city, so he refuses their invitation. And so four times Sanballat sends his invitation email, and four times he gets Nehemiah's automated out-of-office reply. I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. But know that your request is very important to us, and the next available representative will be with you shortly. And so on the other end, Sanballat is just fuming. So he tries another scheme, slander. He sends an anonymous email to Nehemiah's personal account, verse 6. It is reported among the nations that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Does Nehemiah rage quit his email program and storm into Sanballat's office, tell him exactly what he can do with his invitation? No, he takes it to the Lord in prayer once again. 6-8. Then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. 
For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Again, faced with opposition, we see Nehemiah puts his trust in God. Well, Sambalat's schemes are not working. And desperate, he decides to bribe one of the Jews in Jerusalem to deceive Nehemiah. Uh, this man is to tell Nehemiah that Sanballat's men are coming to kill him, and so he should seek sanctuary in the temple. But Nehemiah is too pious to fall for this scheme. Chapter 6, verse 11. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but Sanballat had hired him that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Nehemiah knew that he was not supposed to go into the temple as a pious Jew, and so they were trying to get him to do something sinful uh, and make him look bad in the eyes of the people. And so yet again, Nehemiah gives this situation to the Lord in prayer. Look at verse 14. He prays, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Neodiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. He doesn't attack these men. He prays. He calls on the Lord to do what is right. Now I count at least, at least four times in these chapters where Nehemiah and the Jews have met with opposition from Sanballat and the others. And I also count four prayers of Nehemiah in response. And so the pattern is clear. Nehemiah responds to opposition by remaining faithful to God's calling, doing the work at hand. And as he labors on, he is also praying to the Lord. Trusting the Lord to deal with the opposition, to bring justice in his timing. Can we learn from Nehemiah? When we face opposition, how do we respond? Do we let it get us sidetracked? Do we give all our attention to that opposition and try to mock or deride or fight back in return? This is walking by sight. Or do we instead remain focused on the task at hand, the work to which we have been called, giving ourselves to that work faithfully? And do we pray? Do we cry out to the Lord to deal with the opposition, trusting that he will do so in his timing and in his way, even if that is not ours? This is walking by faith. And so Nehemiah keeps his hand to the plow. He continues in prayer. He walks by faith. And we find that the king of kings grants his servant's request. That brings us to chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. The ruins are rebuilt. The wall is restored. Now, did it happen overnight? No. Was it touch and go at points? Yes. 
But consider this wall has been lying in rubble for almost a hundred years, and many other attempts to rebuild it had failed. And so it's actually remarkable that Nehemiah and the Jews were able to complete this work in less than two months. Verse 16, And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. This is the answer to Nehemiah's prayers. Remember that each time he faced this opposition from, uh, opposition from the nations around them, Nehemiah took it to the Lord in prayer, and God heard the prayers of his servant. The nations have fallen, even in their own esteem. Now, Nehemiah does not attribute this success to his great leadership or to the skill of the craftsmen who were working on the wall or even to the might of Israel's army. No, the wall was built and the enemies were subdued because the Lord heard his prayer and he came to be with his people, protecting, providing, and defending them from their enemies. So to God be the glory. Now, what gave Nehemiah the ability to remain faithful in the face of mocking and violence and slander? How were the Jews able to strengthen their hands for this great work despite all opposition? How might we do great things for the Lord in our day despite opposition? The source of Nehemiah's strong hand is found in that prayer of chapter 1. Nehemiah's hand is strengthened because he knows that God has already redeemed Israel with his strong hand. Nehemiah knows that God has promised to dwell with his people and fight their battles for them. And he knows that God has done it over and over again in the past. This is the source of his strength. This is faith. And we, too, can strengthen our hands in the knowledge that the strong hand of God has already redeemed us. Because some 500 years later, God sent another cupbearer, Jesus, his son. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath that we deserved, and in its place, he brings to us the cup of salvation. Jesus, the greater Nehemiah, heard of our great trouble and shame, and he entered into our suffering, taking on our human flesh. He didn't remain in his heavenly palace. He came to earth. And not only did he survey the scope of our ruin, he himself took on our ruined flesh. And like Nehemiah before him, he set his hand to the restoration and rebuilding of our ruined humanity. And as with Nehemiah, Jesus' faithful labor drew the ire of the world. As Nehemiah dealt with the attacks of Sanballat, so Jesus began his ministry with the temptations of Satan. And he was mocked and derided and attacked by the religious and political leaders of Israel to the day of his death. But Jesus remained faithful. When his enemies threatened him, he did not avenge himself. 
but entrusted himself to the Father in prayer and in supplication. He did not turn aside from his calling, despite the opposition, but set his face like a flint to accomplish the will of the Father. The Lord protected Nehemiah, spared his life from the pit, but the Father gave his own son over to death in our place. And it appeared that our ruined flesh had fallen to ruin once again. But then, to the terror of his enemies, the Father raised his son to life from the grave. And the walls of his flesh, which had been ruined, were built anew. But not simply rebuilt. In the resurrected Christ, we see humanity itself resurrected, transformed, glorified, free from the shackles of sin and death. We see humanity as it was always meant to be, unbreakable, incorruptible, eternal, and strong. Jesus did not rebuild one wall or one city or one temple. In Jesus, we see humanity and all creation are rebuilt, brought forth from the rubble of sin and death and recreated in glory. And the Father's promise to us is that one day all who trust in Jesus will be rebuilt as he is. We will share in his resurrection. We will share in his new creation. This is our strong hope. And this bright hope for tomorrow is the source of our strength for today. It strengthens our hands for the work that God has set before us. At home, at school, in our workplace, in our neighborhood, in our society, in the world. Loving God and loving our neighbor for his glory. This is our work. And we can give ourselves faithfully to the work of Christ because Christ gave himself faithfully to the work of our salvation. At times we will face opposition. We will work with one hand and we will take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, in the other. When we face opposition, we will take it to the Lord in prayer. And we will trust that if we labor for the Lord, our labor will not be in vain. For Christ, our greater Nehemiah, is building his new Jerusalem in his church. And one day, the work will be complete. And we will dwell with the Lord forever. Let us pray. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his word, we confess that we have ruined ourselves and our world with our sin. But you have already rebuilt and resurrected the world in your resurrected son, Jesus. And you promise to complete that rebuilding through the work of his body on earth and finally at his second advent. Strengthen us in him to do the work which you have called us to now. Teach us to pray and entrust our labors to you. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.